Hey everyone, welcome back to the Chain Reaction Podcast. I'm your host, Tom Shaughnessy, a co-founder at Delphi Digital, where we're five full-time analysts focused on institutional crypto research. If you aren't a subscriber, you're missing out, so visit the site while you're listening. One quick housekeeping item, this podcast is strictly informational and educational and is not investment advice or solicitation to buy or sell any tokens or securities or to make any financial decisions. I may personally own tokens that are mentioned on the podcast, and you can view the show notes for our full disclosures. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. Today, I'm thrilled to have on Lung, the CTO of REN Protocol. And I'm also joined by my partner and a fellow co-founder of Delphi Digital, Medio DeMarco. Uh, Lung, how's it going? Hey, guys. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, it's, uh, it's going pretty well. It's awesome. So I guess let's dive right in. How did you get started in crypto? Uh, so I've I've always been interested in distributed systems. I've been studying them for years outside the context of blockchain. Uh, and then in 2017, uh, Taiyang, uh, a friend and business partner of mine for many years, had had this idea. Uh, and so we, we teamed up and we thought we'd tackle crypto. It was sort of a perfect marriage of his skills uh, and my expertise in that area. That's great. And what's the elevator pitch on REN protocol for those that might be new to it or those might not know? Uh, REN protocol is all about achieving interoperability. Uh, and it's about doing that by bringing interoperability to existing chains instead of waiting for you know chains to adopt our interoperability protocol. Got it. That's interesting. So, I mean, how do you think you guys compare to other protocols like Polkadot and Cosmos? Are you guys trying to only be, say, a bridge or are you guys trying to add more functionality there? How do you guys think your positioning is in the market? So we kind of complement um, projects like Polkadot and Cosmos because um, if you look at those guys, they all talk about achieving some kind of bridge from Cosmos or, or Polkadot uh, to ETH and Bitcoin and these existing blockchains uh, and other blockchains that don't uh, admit their protocol are not fundamentally compatible. And so when you need a bridge uh, for those types of blockchains, that's where REN kind of comes in and, and fills in that role and becomes that bridge. Uh, at the moment, it's really just about bridging digital assets because they're the primary use case for blockchains these days. But there's no reason why the protocol uh, can't be expanded to support sort of generic data transfers um, and also to do that whole thing uh, in private as well. So it's not just about interoperability, but interoperability without having to compromise privacy in the process. No, that's awesome. I mean, there's it seems like there's a handful of interoperability protocols, though, and they're all making you know different trade-offs. I mean, do you like what are the key aspects of driving the need for interoperability? Like, do you need projects like DeFi projects or things like that to need to use multiple blockchains? Or I guess what's the impetus to requiring run protocol in a project? I think the key is is usually liquidity. Um, and this usually comes in as a problem for, for the DeFi space. Um, DEXs being kind of a primary example of that, which is that if you have a DEX on Ethereum or any other blockchain, but I'll use Ethereum as an example, one of the key things that you want in a DEX is obviously liquidity. Um, and in order to achieve that, you really need to tap into the blockchains that have the most of that, which at the moment is Bitcoin. Um, and by being a DEX on Ethereum, you kind of lock yourself out from Bitcoin. And, and the need for interoperability is the need to sort of unchain all of that liquidity and, and make it available to everyone for whatever their use case is. Um, the same can kind of be said for things like you know, lending platforms that are on Ethereum. It'd be great to be able to borrow and lend Bitcoin because there's a huge interest in doing that, probably more so than 
you know, lending and borrowing ERC-20s, which are lower liquidity, they're typically more volatile, uh, so they're harder to work with in those platforms. So that's kind of really where we see interoperability being needed. But there's also this kind of more general need for it, which you see in almost every system, which is that people are going to build blockchains which have particular trade-offs and particular pros and cons, um, and you just want to be able to move data between them. Um, you don't want to have to think about whether I'm locked into one kind of protocol or, or another type when when you start building your application as a developer. And to meet user adoption, you certainly don't want users to think about what blockchain they're using. That would kind of be analogous to a, a Facebook user having to understand that they're using TCP IP or a gamer understanding that they're using you know, UDP. Um, really, you want that to be as hidden as possible. No, that's a good point. So you know, before we jump into your test net, which, which Matty will jump into, I guess the one educational, you know, like real high level question for those that might be new to the idea. So you're basically explaining DeFi using Bitcoin. How would that work from an implementation standpoint? Is this like leveraging Bitcoin on a DeFi app on another chain or like where exactly do the tokens trade off and like, how does this all look? Basically to the developer, um, Bitcoin or any other token that is um, moved around. Uh, we, we support Bitcoin and Zcash at the moment. Um, it just looks like an ERC-20. So they can continue using it and developing against an ERC-20 standard as, as they have done. And to the users, it just looks like a normal Bitcoin or Zcash transaction from a normal Bitcoin or Zcash wallet. And everything else between those two is handled by, by RenVM. So we actually do have a live demo, which I guess we will chat about later. Um, but for people who really want to see how it works, that's a pretty good demonstration. And basically, you can buy... Uh, I think it's DAI from a, a DEX by just sending Bitcoin to a Bitcoin address and nominating an Ethereum address, and it just works. Yeah, I'm glad you uh, you mentioned RenVM and that uh, that example. You know, I watched the video; it was very uh, impressive, looked very seamless, and you know, things like that are very necessary for helping DeFi continue to grow. I know a lot of people are excited about the possibility of using uh, you know Bitcoin for on DEXs, but also as collateral. And um, I think an important point is not is to really emphasize that it's not wrapped Bitcoin; it's it's a uh, you know the true asset. Um, you know, just going off recent news, this has been a big month for you guys since uh, the launch of RenVM on the on the testnet. I, I guess just uh, looking forward, what do you expect for the uh, the rest of the year's roadmap, and you know, when can we expect the main mainnet launch to occur? So we are hoping that our mainnet launch will happen uh, late this year, uh, if not early next year. Um, but that rollout will take will take some amount of time to make sure that it can happen securely. We don't just kind of want to suddenly release uh, a mainnet onto a couple hundred nodes. There's going to be um, a process that we go through, but we do expect that to start sort of uh, late 2019, uh, early 2020. Uh, yeah, between now and and then, it's it's mostly testing, getting feedback from users and the projects uh, that are looking to adopt the platform and making improvements where we can. So, I guess that's kind of why that timeline is a little um, unknown because we might find that uh, projects come back and say, you know, this feature is absolutely necessary for any of us to get anything done. And then we have to go build that and, and make sure it's stable and secure and, and get it audited. No, I think you bring up a very important point in how, you know, REN is really positioning itself in the landscape where it's not so much competition to, uh, you know, existing dApps within DeFi, but more so a complement that it can really expand their functionality where, you know, you just kind of plug and play and, uh, you know, expand all of the different, um, you know, use cases for your dApp. Um, you know, you'd mentioned briefly, you know, you're working with other projects during this testnet phase. Um, can you give any, you know, kind of indication on how many projects you're working with or, 
maybe any notable ones that you know you've had a close relationship with? Um, I can't do that publicly yet, but that kind of information uh, it is coming. Uh, we're working on sort of making that available. Um, obviously, it's it's important, especially in this space, not to I guess like make that information available at the wrong time uh, or to sort of like hype things up. Uh, we're very anti-hype, but that information will come out. We're working very closely with about half a dozen uh, fairly big projects. Um, I think their names are big names that everyone is familiar with. Um, we're working about, I think, a dozen projects in our uh, working group, uh, and we've had several dozen. Uh, I think last time I checked it was around the 40, maybe 50 mark uh, of projects that have, have handed in an EOI, uh, like an expression of interest for kind of what they're building. Um, and, you know, we'll go through that and, and provide support for them when we can, as we can. Um, and we'll be opening up our, our dev center soon as well and get everyone in there. Yeah, no, I, I know one focus uh, that you guys have is uh, making sure that the SDK is easy to use for developers. I guess in terms of this is, you know, I'm sure hard to predict, but uh, you know, when RenVM does come to mainnet and you've worked with these projects in advance, uh, you know, testing out features, uh, what have you, uh, how, how long do you see that implement, uh, implementation process taking? You know, a few weeks, a few months? Uh, is it something that really is, uh, you know, a, a true plug and play solution that can be quick? Or do you think it's a uh, more of a long term build out once it's available? Um, that really depends from, from app to app. I think for DEXs, it's pretty quick um, because you can kind of just integrate. Uh, test that on testnet um, and then you know you can release that it's basically just an ERC20 standard and uh, to the developers and most of the dexes already support ERC20s i think for other applications it can be a little trickier and it really is application dependent because uh, as an example when you have um, like lending and loaning platforms um, you often need a price feed of some kind and so understanding how you get a price feed for something like bitcoin into your application um, requires you know a larger scope than you might need in a DEX, where it's just a matter of you know deploying a new liquidity pool and, and waiting for people to deposit their liquidity. So I think for different projects, some of them it might take you know on the low end of months or, or the high end of weeks, um, but for other projects it may take a little longer than that. Sure. Yeah, I know um, with Ren Protocol, you've spent a lot of time developing uh, you know new solutions for secure multi-party computation, and uh, you're implementing zero knowledge proofs. Could you maybe just walk through? Uh, you know what makes Ren Protocol innovative in that sense, and uh, you know you know different uh, from the competition. One of the key innovations for secure multi-party computations um, is liveliness. So the ability to allow some of our nodes to go offline halfway through the computation, and the computation to proceed uh, without failing, which is not something that a lot of modern secure multi-party uh, implementations actually can do. Um, most of the literature stops looking at, at liveliness and focuses mostly on safety, which is how can the computation be safe against literally every single person except one being adversarial, which is great um, from a safety perspective, but not great from a liveliness perspective where you're in a decentralized network, you've got nodes distributed all around the world. Uh, the likelihood that you could find any reasonably sized subset of those nodes that is fully connected and to do that all of the time and, and sort of throughout the life of the protocol is very unlikely, especially uh, that's before you even consider potential Byzantine behavior. Um, it's just the nature of massive distributed networks. So once you take Byzantine behavior into consideration, the likelihood that you have even a small click, maybe 24 nodes um, that you can continuously find and find in a reasonable and, and reliable way throughout the, the network 
uh, and ensure that they're all going to be online all the time is is pretty much zero. Uh, and even if you can find one, it's very easy to attack because you can just DOS a single node and it's game over. Um, so that's kind of where our innovation lies fundamentally is making a, a trade-off and a balance between safety and liveliness because we treat those two things actually as equal. On one hand, it's bad if the network can steal your funds. But if you can't access your funds, as a user, they're essentially stolen. You don't care that they didn't go to someone. You can't access them, and that's all that really matters to you. Then that's awesome, Color. And could you walk us through the trade-offs or the differences you guys made when deciding to use your modified version of Tendermint for your consensus algorithm? I'm just wondering if you guys made any major changes there or if you could just walk through how exactly you're achieving consensus on, on your protocol. Sure. So one of the reasons we went with Tendermint is because um, it's pretty well studied uh, and pretty well understood. Um, it has the same liveliness and safety thresholds uh, as our algorithm right now. Um, we're under ways of making improvements to our algorithm to actually bump that up to 50%, in which case we may end up looking at a different consensus algorithm in the future. But that was why we sort of started with, with Tendermint. It's got that one-third safety and one-third liveliness threshold. Um, the other reason we went with it is because it has instant finality. So there's an exact moment where you can say, yep, everyone has reached consensus. There's no doubt about it. Um, and when you're using, when you're doing interoperability, that's really necessary. Otherwise, you're adding all of these extra delays waiting for multiple confirmations. Um, and the modifications we made were, one of them is pretty simple. It's just sharding, the ability to sort of change signatories um, on the fly. Um, and the the second one is a bit more subtle. It's when you have a blockchain, typically having the block is the only thing you need to understand the state transition uh, from one state to another. But in a secure multi-party computation environment, that's not enough because you need to actually collaborate with a bunch of other nodes in order to understand that state transition. So being able to decouple uh, consensus from block execution and make sure that they can kind of lockstep with each other so that you, you're not, so your consensus is not getting way ahead of your execution uh, because that can get you into some weird situations. Got it. That's super interesting. And I guess just moving on to you know other things that you guys have been working with and other teams, you guys partnered, I believe you partnered with the Aztec protocol. Could you go through you know why you're working with them or anything that's come out of that partnership? I, I think it was back in March that you guys announced that. Sure. So um, Aztec is actually um, a really cool protocol. Uh, and one of the things that we're, we're looking at right now and we'll be sort of like collaborating much more closely on, on in the future is if you have Zcash and you want to transport that to, to Ethereum, ideally you don't want to give up on the, the privacy that Zcash is giving you um, in, in two ways. In one way, um, if you have an unknown amount of Zcash on um, the Zcash blockchain and you want to send that to Ethereum, you want it to stay hidden on Ethereum. Um, that's probably the reason you had Zcash in the first place. It's, it's one of the it's, you know, distinguishing factors. Uh, or Monero or any of these other sort of privacy coins. The other thing is that you want that transition to be secret as well. Um, if the transition is not secret, then it's not really much good to you that you, know, you have an unknown amount on Zcash and an unknown amount on Ethereum. But when you move between the two, you have to reveal how much you're moving. So that's kind of where our key um, collaboration is going to lie. Um, but also in just making sure that when you transfer a non-privacy asset like Bitcoin to Ethereum, that you can opt into privacy at that moment and say, well, okay, while it's on Ethereum, I want it to be private. Uh, and, and Aztec is the way by which we're going to achieve that. Oh, that's awesome. And 
I mean, I guess that's a great segue into like how are developers or users using Ren to bring private transactions to Ethereum and Bitcoin? Is this basically just a proxy of everything you guys have built or is this really like the end goal? I wouldn't say that private transactions are necessarily uh, the end goal. Uh, I actually don't really see an end goal. <laughs> um, but privacy would just be something that rolls out slowly over time. So, so the first release will just be about that basic interoperability and getting users familiar with that. And I think there's tons of adoption that needs to happen there. Um, and then once that's available, we can, we can turn our eyes towards privacy and making um, those transactions opt-in or opt-out privacy. Um, and that just sort of opens the use cases a little bit more, um, being able to send Bitcoin uh, through private uh, applications where you, you know, don't have to reveal information is obviously very um, something that I think everyone in this space kind of wants. <clears throat> Privacy is quite a fundamental need. Um, but developers shouldn't really have to change much when they interact with it. Ideally, these tools will be something where they can just kind of click a button and say, I want all the things I already have, but I want them to be private. Got it. And I mean, one last question on there. I mean, I know privacy isn't the only focus, but it seems like it's a big focus for you guys since you're able, or the Ren VM is able to run computations in secret and the inputs and outputs in state are never revealed. How would developers achieve that today without using Ren? Would I have to use something like Enigma or is it just not possible today? It's just not possible today. Not in the way that, that Ren VM does it. I think the key reason why that is the case is it's all about that multi-input. So there are ways right now to do to attest to things on chain without revealing what those things are exactly, and that's kind of like where zero knowledge proofs come into it, and where applications like Stark decks um, are working really well. But that's not keeping multiple inputs from multiple different people secret from each other. So if you and I both want to interact with each other on chain, but do that without revealing information to each other, that's just not something that we can do in a safe and secure way right now. Those are great points. And I think that's what makes Ren such an interesting project to follow because if you look at you know the current applications and the current functionality of what's out there, uh, being able to privately move back and forth between Bitcoin and Ethereum and then also um, you know, use, use your tokens in DeFi without having that be public information, what have you, uh, that, would be, that would really be a game changer. So uh, in terms of what Ren protocol can bring uh, to these applications, I think that's um, you know, something that would really change the game. Uh, just moving on to um, you know the economics of the protocol. At the heart of Ren uh, lies the the dark nodes. If you could just briefly uh, explain the economics behind them. Sure. So a multi-party computation works because you have multiple parties, uh, which all sort of break the computation down into little bits, and they each get to see a little bit of it, which reveals nothing about the computation as a whole. So the dark nodes are those little bits. They're the the parties in the secure multi-party, if you will, and so they really power RenVM as a whole, uh, and they, they come together to sort of make one coherent network that can do what it does. So um, in order to run a dark node, you need to have an amount of Ren that you can bond into the network, and that's just to prevent people from signing up you know, an arbitrary amount of, of dark nodes and therefore attacking the network quite, quite trivially. This puts a, a financial bound on the adversary. Um, and those dark nodes, they collaborate, they, they run RenVM in return. They earn fees from uh, the assets that they're transferring back and forth. So if you transfer Bitcoin uh, from one chain to another, you'll uh, be paying a small fee from the amount that you transfer to, to the dark nodes, and they'll share that with each other. Um, and if dark nodes aren't participating and they're just lazy, they're just, they've 
bond at their end, but they're not actually doing any work. Um, they'll get kicked out of the network and they'll sacrifice any fees that they might have earned during that time. One thing I think uh, is really interesting about uh, what you guys have done with Ren is you went through a process where you were, you were kind of looking for ideas of, you know, what token uh, should we accept for, for fees? Should it be uh, the Ren token? Should it be ETH? And ultimately, uh, you settled on DAI for uh, certain types of transactions. Could you maybe just walk through the, the logic behind that? Um, because at surface value, I think that that was a great decision and something that I think a lot of uh, you know, dApps could benefit from. Uh, instead of trying to force, you know, maybe their their utility token into being a, a currency within their DAP, maybe just accepting something um, stable like Dai that, um, you know, maybe maybe the end user would rather uh, prefer spending. So there are actually two uh, ways to earn fees, I guess, in, in the network as a dark node. One of them is Dai, uh, and the other is in the native token that's being transferred. So mostly that's what you'll see. So mostly we expect things like Bitcoin and Zcash to be the way by which fees are paid. So if you transfer, you know, a thousand dollars of Bitcoin from one chain to another, you might pay ten cents um, mm-hmm. to to the network, but you'll pay that in Bitcoin. And the reason for that is um, it it's a natural way to restrict which tokens are going to be supported by the network. Um, so dark nodes will only sort of accept tokens that they do actually believe have intrinsic value. Um, but in other cases, when you start moving towards more general purpose uh, usage, so when you start doing data transfer back and forth, not necessarily token transfer. There isn't something by which you can take a cut of, and so you need a way to pay. And we went with Dai because um, the reality is that real world costs are in USD. If you're a dark node operator, um, you're paying your your costs for infrastructure, uh, data, networking. Uh, you're paying all of that in in US dollars. And if you're earning, let's say ETH or really any token um, that's highly volatile. You kind of have to factor that in as risk because you're now um, exposed. Um, one way we mitigate that with the, the asset transfer is that at least you're exposed to multiple different types of assets. Um, you know, you're, you're exposed to Bitcoin and Zcash and ETH uh, all all at the same time. Um, but yeah, the choice for Dai was um, if you sort of start from scratch and you think, what is the best token to be paid for for work that I'm doing? The answer is something that's stable. Um, and Dai was the most decentralized option available to us. And so that's what we uh, are pursuing at the moment. Absolutely, absolutely. And that's that difference you explained. That's the um, the two types of fee models that you have. The dynamic, um, like you were saying, where if you transact with Bitcoin, you know, a percentage of that is used for the fee versus, um, you know, uh, computing information or maybe sending an NFT, uh, what have you, where you can't really take a percentage of the, uh, there's nothing to take a percentage of. So that's where Dai comes in. Uh, but no, I think for an end user experience, I think that's a, a you know a smart decision, um, and it's probably something that I, I think we can expect to see from you know maybe some other projects moving forward. Yeah, I certainly hope so because I think it's also quite a restriction for developers. As a developer, when we work on Ethereum, it's kind of annoying to have to be exposed to ETH risk mm-hmm. in order to use Ethereum and to never know how much my computation is actually going to cost, both in terms of gas, but also in terms of what that gas actually is priced as. Absolutely. And I mean, that's a common critique you hear with, um, you know, DeFi lending as well, where you have to use, um, you know, Ethereum as collateral. A lot of people would would like to use Bitcoin, but it's just not an option. So uh, with REN protocol being able to to possibly deliver that, that uh, that would be huge. Yeah. And um, I guess that's kind of that was really one of the needs that we we really saw when we discovered interoperable capability and that's why we're we're tackling it now. Now, RenVM, that's we've we've addressed. That's on testnet still, but you guys have built a live tool that's available for download that does some of this functionality already called Swapper D. 
if you could just maybe briefly explain uh, what that is and how that works and maybe its role in the, the future of REN protocol. Um, we don't see SwapID having a role in the future of REN protocol. Um, SwapID was uh, a tool for doing atomic swaps um, because atomic swaps at the time, uh, at that stage of, of our network's life, was the only way to do cross-chain transactions. Um, and building it had several purposes. One was um, it gave us a lot of insight into the user experience and exactly all of the, the problems that, that atomic swaps have. Um, it enabled people to trade on our platform at that time um, with technology that was available at that time. Otherwise, they would have been waiting. I think it's been almost a year now since the original release of, of SwapID, or at least since we started working on it. Um, but moving forward, we see it being... Um, it's already, we've already sort of deprecated it and we're only doing major security updates. Um, but beyond that, we don't see it uh, being used. So Loon, just switching over, just zooming out a little bit, um, you guys run a decentralized dark pool for, for transfers. And I'm just wondering, like Cosmos is used basically for token transfers and Polkadot is used more for arbitrary data transfers. Do you guys think that basically sticking to token transfers could like you know, circle out the arbitrary data transfer like side of the market? Or do you think that this is basically what you guys want to target and there, there's a market big enough for this? I think there is a market big enough for uh, token transfers. Um, certainly, that's why we're starting there. Um, it is the primary use case. I think you'll find that even with generic data interoperability, what people will be using that for is to build DeFi applications and, and DEXs just in a different way where they can components of the DEX can exist across across different systems, but ultimately the use case will still, uh, at the end of the day, be about transferring assets back and forth. Um, but a RenVM is capable of doing those more general um, types of interoperability as well. And so uh, it's not something we're focusing on immediately, but if the market shifts that way, it's something that we can definitely turn our attentions to um, and tackle if it becomes the bigger market. And ultimately, um, I'm not sure how RenVM will be used in the long term, but I do think that for the foreseeable future, it will be about um, transfer of digital assets. Just with your target market, do you envision that this will stay with developers and dApps and crypto native users, or do you envision a world where large institutions, funds, and firms could start using REN for transfers uh, for whatever they want to use it for? Maybe to another party, or maybe if they want to transfer tokens without uh, people knowing, or, or just more in a private manner? I think um, the answer is a bit of both, but um, RenVM is mostly a developer tool. Um, it's mostly a way for developers to build applications that they can't build right now. I think we do envision large institutions and, and high volume trades happening through things like OTC desks uh, using RenVM, but I don't think that these desks will be like interacting directly with um, RenVM. They'll typically act, interact with some kind of application that is built just for them that uses RenVM in order to make the system more secure and, and interoperable. So initially, I'm reading on the docs in your site. So initially, you guys are going to support Bitcoin and Zcash payments to and from Ethereum smart contracts. So what would that look like in practice? Like, could you walk us through an example? Like, maybe if I'm using an Ethereum dApp, like, what would this look like? Like, if I'm on Gods Unchained or something on Ethereum and I'm trading cards could I send Bitcoin to other users on that game? Like, what exactly does this look like? Just for an illustrative example here. Sure. Um, I guess the best way uh, for anyone listening to this is to jump onto our, our live demo and have a play with our 
sort of simple decks that we've built there. Um, but to kind of walk through it, basically what will happen is much like these days you see um, centralized exchanges offer you a deposit address that you should send you know, your tokens to, you'll start seeing dApps um, say, here's a deposit address um, in order to send Bitcoin to so-and-so in exchange for um, this card, uh, deposit your Bitcoin here and deposit at least this amount. Um, and if you deposit less than that amount, it'll just bounce back and, and come back to you. Um, and if you deposit at least that amount, then it'll get uh, transferred to the smart contract behind the scenes and, and everything will happen that needs to happen. Uh, in the case of, of your example, you know, the, the card might be exchanged uh, for that Bitcoin. Um, and in the case of a DEX, you'll, you'll get the, the token that you're buying. No, that's, I mean, that's easy and that's, that's so clear. And, you know, I guess one of the other things is you guys, I mean, one of your goal is to bring Bitcoin to DeFi. I mean, what was the impetus for that? I mean, is that a reaction to DeFi being built or is that like, I'm just wondering the design space here, like it's harder to build on Bitcoin, you know, let's bring Bitcoin to another chain where we can build. Like what exactly is the drive to do this? Um, the drive was kind of that originally we were building our dark pool and the key problem that we faced was this cross-chain liquidity problem, which is it's no good building a, a dark pool on Ethereum because it's not, there's just not enough liquidity there to warrant the existence of a dark pool. And so we started looking at how do we solve that. And when we came up with RenVM as a, as a viable solution, we realized that this is not constrained to just dark pools, that there's a more general um, use case here. And that's just, I think, basic engineering thinking. You, you find a problem, you find a solution, and you think, does anyone else have this problem? Or maybe a variant of this problem that the solution can be a solution for that as well. That our solution isn't just for us, but it's something that is more general and it can be used by more people. And it was kind of serendipitous that around that time, DeFi was really taking off and sort of the open finance movement and people were starting to realize some of these use cases for Ethereum uh, went beyond just trading and more mature financial products were beginning to be built. It was a very natural thing to look at that and say, well, these guys probably want access to Bitcoin for the same reasons that we do. We needed liquidity for our system to be secure and reasonable to even exist that constraint exists for these products as well. And that's kind of why we decided to tackle that. We, we had a solution at hand and we realized that it was a solution for a problem much bigger than the problem that we were tackling at that time. No, that's awesome. And that's a great transition. And, and I love the energy and following what works. And I guess the other question here is, you know, let's say that I'm a developer using REN protocol and, you know, I'm using Bitcoin on Ethereum. I'm just kind of wondering about like the potential like risks here like are are we basically trusting the bitcoin network then the ren protocol consensus network and then ethereum's network like it seems like we're stacking a lot of not risk but a lot of trust on i know it's trustless but a lot of trust on multiple networks being secure and working is that the right way to think about this or am i thinking about that in the wrong way yeah that that is the right way to think about it um i think if you're using Bitcoin on Ethereum and you want to use Bitcoin on Ethereum, there's kind of this implicit, um, it's kind of implicitly okay to assume that you're happy with Ethereum's trust model and happy with Bitcoin's trust model. If you're not happy with Ethereum's trust model, well, then go ahead and use Bitcoin on, on EOS or Tron um, because our, our solution is not just bound to, to Ethereum. Um, the, the additional risk that you're taking on is the trusting of RenVM that you know it's being built correctly and that it's assumptions about it the network are the correct assumptions to have. For example, you're not going to have an adversary that's controlling one third of the network in a malicious way. 
um, that's ultimately the risk that you're taking on, that if the network gets corrupted, that that bridge will fail and you either won't be able to send Bitcoin into Ethereum or whatever other uh, token transfers you might be doing, um, or you won't be able to get it back out. I guess let's envision a world where let's say um, a project is using REN protocol for a massive project built on Ethereum, but they're also using Bitcoin here, right? Would it make sense to, I mean, I feel like if something is, a project is that large, I feel like the attack vector would be REN protocol. But to your point, there'd be so many nodes, this would be very hard to do. I guess, is that the right way to think about it? Yeah. And it's why we were very careful with the way that our underlying token economics works is that the security of our network is is reliant on the REN token. And the only use for the REN token is to, to create an, a dark node identity. And that's fundamental to the security of the network. Um, you can't use another token. Because if you use another token, then the total value bonded in your network is not related to the use of the network. In the example that you give, if there's a huge project that's using a lot of Bitcoin or a lot of assets cross-chain, the implication is that, that that's going through RenVM. Because, you know, we're making the assumption that that's what's happening and RenVM is therefore the attack vector. Just by having all of that liquidity moving through uh, the protocol, the amount of REN that can be bonded in terms of value will can only go up. It wouldn't make sense for that value to go down because the only thing that drives the value uh, of that REN token is whether or not it's being bonded into the network and how much fees the dark nodes are earning, which is directly correlated to this sort of how much liquidity is moving back and forth. And so as more people adopt the network, it gets harder and harder to attack. Um, and the relationship there is is very clear. Yeah, no, you bring up a you bring up a very good point. And you know, when I think about REN protocol and its security, and uh, you know how dark nodes operate, it's uh, it's very similar. With the, the bonding process is very similar to uh, proof of stake in other networks, where you know you need the you need REN to be valuable, and you need the uh, collateral that's locked up in these dark nodes to be valuable uh, to really make sure that the network is secured, to make sure that REN protocol is secure. Um, you know, given that REN is you know still relatively uh, lower mar- low market cap relative to you know the giants like Ethereum and Bitcoin, what have you. Uh, do you almost see like a kind of chicken and the egg problem where you know you need REN to be secure for people to want to use it, but it won't be secure until the value of the token rises? Uh, is that anything that you've kind of tossed with? But uh, I do think that you guys have done a great job in structuring the token economics. But how do you get the, the the token value to a point where the underlying protocol is secure enough to use? Yeah, so I mean, I guess one of the metrics we're we're using is how expensive is it realistically to attack other networks. Um, and how do we relate to that? Um, and you're absolutely right. There is this chicken and egg problem. Um, and I think it's something that every network faces. Um, that's part of our mainnet rollout plan. So, I mean, that's why we can't just say, all right, mainnet's here. Let's release it to all the dark nodes at once. Um, and, you know, it's, it's fair game. It's free for all. Um, that's not a, a mature way to approach this problem. Um, and, and it's not really going to, get us there in the fastest way. It might eventually, you know, get adopted in small amounts and then you know, sort of bootstrap itself naturally from there. But to, to really make that take off as fast as we can, it has to be a more controlled release um, where we can uh, maybe make trade-offs and have it be a little bit more centralized to begin with, um, but still more decentralized than existing solutions uh, in order to beef up the security under a different assumption model and then slowly roll it out um, and make it more and more decentralized over time as more and more REN gets bonded into the system. Yeah, no, you, and you bring up great points. And, you know, one thing that's going to help, uh, you know, drive that 
uh, that the value of the collateral, the rent token higher uh, to secure the network is, you know, profitability of dark nodes. And I know one step that you and your team have taken is, you know, kind of, uh, you know, improving the, um, you know, the hardware, the software required to run dark nodes where you've made it, uh, you know, cheaper to run, more efficient. Uh, could you maybe talk about that a little bit and, you know, the process you went through, uh, you know, developing and building out, um, you know, the changes to your protocol? Yeah, um, I guess, obviously, the... Um, I guess one thing that maybe is a little different about RenVM compared to some other protocols is that staking is not enough. So just just by by locking up Ren in uh, a smart contract is not enough to earn any kind of return. You actually have to run a dark node, which means you have to have certain um, hardware running certain kinds of software and, and keeping that alive twenty four seven, and that has an inherent cost. Um, and initially, that cost was just way too high, um, and we. I guess basically just went through a long process. Well, it wasn't that long. I guess more like a focused process. Like a, it was really a key focus for us. I've just been proving our technology to the point where it really didn't need that much hardware to run, where it could be run on, on the smallest possible machine. And we just set that as as a benchmark. And we walked into the office every day and it was written on our wall, you know, $5 a month. Um, and we worked towards that relentlessly. Um, we improved our system on, on many fronts, not just the spec and sort of the concept and how to make it conceptually simpler, but also the, the implementation and how do you make sure the implementation is as absolutely lean and mean as possible. No, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. Loon, just switching gears, um, one question I guess for you is, you know, it seems to me like Cosmos is your main competitor here for token transfers. It seems like you know, their mainnet's been live. They launched earlier, but they definitely launched in a limited fashion. Um, and a lot of people pin them against Polkadot, but I, I definitely think there are, there's a lot of differences there. Do you think that there's anything fundamentally wrong with Cosmos that will lead people to Ren? Or do you basically just think that all of the trade-offs you guys make with, with all of your other capabilities will drive developers to you guys instead? Um, I think there's actually a much bigger difference between Cosmos and RenVM than, let's say, Cosmos and Polkadot. I'd say they're much more natural competitors. Um, in order for Cosmos to unlock liquidity from Polkadot or to talk to Polkadot um, or to talk to Bitcoin or to talk to ETH, to talk to any network that isn't part of IBC, um, you need some other way. The Cosmos takes this approach of we have this protocol or this uh, standard, which is IBC, the interblockchain communication protocol. And if your blockchain knows how to speak that language then you can talk to other blockchains that speak that language and you can go through the cosmos hub to do that now um there are obviously a lot of blockchains that don't support ibc and i don't see them ever supporting ibc bitcoin is very conservative in its development for example um and if you want that level of interoperability you have to look at a, a solution that exists at a different level and that's kind of where renvm comes in and so we see renvm as really a complement to ecosystems like cosmos like polkadot like Aon, um, because it allows you to bring these non-native to your ecosystem blockchains to your ecosystem. Um, and you don't have to do it in sort of like a naive 20 out of 20 multi-sig kind of way, which is you know the standing approach at the moment. Um, it also is just another security model. So I think there are certain security assumptions that Cosmos makes. There's only 100 um, nodes, for example, and, and the Cosmos Hub, I think, plans to expand up to 300 eventually. Um, you know, that's one way of approaching the security model, um, and I think people may be okay with that. But there may be people who want something 
that runs on a network that has thousands of machines. And I think when developers start looking that way, RenVM becomes a very natural choice. That's excellent, caller. And just switching gears again, because while we have you, I want to ask as much as we can. You know, how easy is it? Yeah, sure. So, how easy is it for developers to get involved with RenVM or Ren Protocol? Like, is this you know a couple lines of code? Is this like an advanced implementation? Is this something tacked on? Like, where exactly does it fit into the developer uh, tool toolkit? So, it depends where you are in your development cycle. Um, if you're a fresh developer and you have not begun your project yet, RenVM is super easy to implement um, support for. You have a couple lines of JavaScript. Um, you need a good designer to understand about confirmation delays, but I think that's something that everyone needs at the moment anyway um, because confirmation delays are something that everyone deals with. Um, and that's it, basically. Um, it's, it is a handful of lines of code. I think maybe a dozen or so. Most of that is in your front end in the form of JavaScript. Um, and you don't even have to use that. You can just interact. You can build your own system to interact with your NVM. You don't have to use our SDK if you don't like it. Um, it's just a sort of JSON RPC API. Um, if you are a new developer and you have an existing system, then in order to make Bitcoin or Zcash or any of these tokens compatible with your system, you don't have to change your system as it is. You just have to build this layer of adapters in, in front of it that can sort of like be a little bit of glue between RenVM and, and your existing DAP. So your existing DAP probably speaks a particular language. Um, RenVM speaks its language, and this adapter allows you to sort of communicate between the two of them. Um, and we have lots of examples on our website of that. Um, one of my favorites is our, our Uniswap adapter, which just shows how you can make Bitcoin available to a user, like real native Bitcoin, uh, to a user using Uniswap. Uh, and it's a very slim adapter. It's, it's a couple of lots of code. Wow, that's awesome. And I guess just closing out, looking at your roadmap, it looks like you guys have Hyperdrive Plan, which is a new consensus algorithm, and then your mainnet launch. What are you most excited about? I'm, I'm assuming it's the mainnet. And when can people, I know you probably alluded to this earlier with Medio, but when can people expect um, these two updates? Oh, what am I most excited about? Um, I think I am really excited about some of the updates coming to, to Testnet. Um, and then obviously, I think the mainnet launch goes without saying. Um, I think the things I'm, I'm looking forward to are the different blockchains uh, that we're looking to support and bring in, which we'll talk about more um, sort of as the project evolves. Um, I think one thing that we haven't discussed at all um, that I'm looking forward to that's maybe a little bit out of um, out of line with what we've chatted about is governance and looking at a way to move towards decentralized governance and starting removing the team from the protocol as much as possible. Um, we have this sort of mantra i guess if you will that if we can't die on our way to devcon and have the protocol still survive then we're not finished yet um so even if the protocol achieves everything that we hope to achieve it's not done until we have decentralized governance and development so i'm really excited to see our open source community start to take off a little bit more as we start open sourcing more of our repos we've already had some uh, community contributions which is awesome um but yeah i guess that's what i'm excited for beyond the obvious uh, mainnet yeah, there's definitely a lot in uh, in progress, I would say. No, that's awesome. And how do you envision your governance process working? I mean, I know we didn't get into it, and I don't know too much about it, but are you looking at something on-chain governance, off-chain governance, uh, You know, maybe frequent voting, non-frequent voting? I'm just wondering how that transition happens, because quite frankly, it seems to me like we've never really had a true centralized to centralized kind of handoff. Uh, I mean, there's been a few, but a lot of them have their nuances, of course. 
Yeah, and I think that's why we haven't decided to tackle it yet. Um, governance is a whole thing in and of itself, and um, we are very interested to see how Polkadot takes off, for example, and how its governance system works in the wild with real incentives. Um, Kashiyama has been like an interesting thing to follow, but obviously Polkadot uh, proper will be even more interesting to see. And I guess we'll inform a lot of people in the space, and I'm sure that we'll see um, some things that they, they look to change fairly quickly, um, and we'll be able to see what works and what doesn't work, and that will really inform us. But at the moment, we aren't really committed to anything. Um, we just haven't seen a model that we're super uh, happy with um, that makes a good compromise between being decentralized and being fast. But I guess as we see the ecosystem evolve more, I mean, there's plenty of, of work to do on RenVM before we have to tackle governance. Um, and I think I want to see that process be organic, um, I guess is the only constraint that I, I really have um, myself is I don't want there to be this artificial moment where we hand it off. I think when you look back at the history of RenVM, there won't be a day that you can look at and say, that's the day that they became decentralized in governance. Um, it'll be a gradual process. No, that's awesome. And um, yeah, no, I definitely agree on, on the Polkadot side. I mean, there's there's definitely a lot of cool tech there experimenting with like adaptive quorums and basically the time lock for more power on your vote. But, you know, I, there's definitely some concerns there on the council and basically delayed enactment and, and things like that. But I do like that you guys are staying open to basically adopting whatever model you think um, would be the strongest one at, at the time. Yeah, and I, I think, I mean, the funny thing about governance is once you pull the trigger, you can't unpull the trigger. Um, <laughs> whereas um, while you maintain governance over the system, any other part of your system you can update pretty easily. You know, If we find a new SMPC algorithm um, or a better way of doing X or a better way of doing Y, or you know, maybe general purpose compute becomes the thing that's absolutely needed as opposed to digital assets, then you can adapt very quickly. <clears throat> but um, obviously, I think no matter what governance system you choose, it's always going to be slow. Yeah, no, you got that right. Well, Loon, thanks so much for your time. It's been a pleasure having you on. I know this is definitely more of a technical episode from our end, but um, that's the beauty of it. We get to get involved with you and learn everything from the inside. So thanks so much for your time. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on, guys. It's been been a real pleasure. Thanks, Medio, for uh, joining as well. Appreciate it. No, thank you. Happy to join. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to the episode. If you can go to iTunes and hit subscribe to the Chain Reaction podcast, it'll go a long way in helping us reach new listeners and help support the show. Thanks again.